Alpha is a six-week course exploring the big questions of life. It's for anyone interested in discussing spirituality, God, and the Christian faith in a non-judgmental, open-minded context. Each week, there's a great meal, a short talk, and discussion in small groups. People who come to the course are from lots of different backgrounds. No faith, other faiths, brought up Christian and agnostic. Everyone is welcome. Catch up on each week's talk here. So um, just a little recap. As I said last week, uh, central to the earliest Christian preaching was not just a belief in the resurrection, uh, but also an experience, and specifically the experience of God's love. The whole New Testament really seems to be about the love of God, uh, and specifically, uh, even more specifically, the love of God as displayed um, by Jesus on the cross, the meaning of which we kind of looked at in depth last week. Well, um, we have now three weeks um, left of this course, uh, two before the day away and then one after. And for these remaining weeks, we're going to kind of continue on the theme of the experience of God. Specifically, how can we experience and grow in our understanding of his love for us, his will for our lives, his power to change us and affect us and make us uh, um, more of the people that we kind of sense that we could be from time to time. And as I said, this week we are looking in the sort of primary place where God reveals uh, himself to us, where God speaks to his people, uh, which is the Bible. So what is the Bible? How does it work? Why would anyone read it? Now, obviously, it's a huge subject. I'm only going to be scratching the surface. But hopefully some of the general points I will make will help us understand uh, the Bible a bit better. I'm aware that lots of people, uh, this is a subject that is sort of impenetrable or difficult or comes with lots of um, baggage. The first thing I want to say is that when it comes to the Bible, any treatment of the Bible must always begin with the person of Jesus. It's actually only through understanding him that any of the rest of the Bible actually makes sense. Because ultimately, the Bible is a book about Jesus. The Old Testament, which is um, written over a period of about a thousand years before Jesus, is really a prelude to Jesus. It is about uh, what the world is like in terms of um, God revealing himself, uh, but revealing himself in ways in which he's not ever fully understandable or knowable. And it's a sense about um, what are people going to do without a full understanding of Jesus. And then Jesus comes on the scene at the beginning of the New Testament in the four Gospels. And then the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament, is really about what life is like for people now that we have Jesus. So we need to start with Jesus. If you were like me, you would have grown up going, oh, I should probably start at the beginning. And I tried to read the Bible when I started, and I, uh, when I was young, and I opened uh, Genesis. And Genesis was quite fun, quite a lot, lots of exciting stories uh, and odd things uh, like murder and rape. Uh, not that that's exciting or fun, uh, but these sorts of things. And, but then quickly I got into um, Exodus, it gets a bit more weird, and then uh, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and it's actually really boring, and then I gave up. Uh, if you've done that, start with Jesus. Start with one of the Gospels. Because it's only when we really understand who Jesus is that any of the rest of the Bible will actually come alive and make sense. Um, 
I had uh, an experience of just feeling like there's so many contradictions in the Bible. In the Old Testament, God seems quite angry. In the New Testament, he seems nice, but then also now and again quite angry, so kind of schizophrenic maybe. And perhaps that's worse than him just being like, you know where you stand, he's just angry all the time. Uh, so I gave up, as I said. But when I eventually did become a Christian, uh, it was like the Bible completely changed for me. I read uh, Mark's Gospel, and then I read Matthew's Gospel, and then I read Luke's Gospel, and then I read John's Gospel, and then I read all of them over again. And it was like Jesus came lifting off the page. It was like it became real and exciting, and I could picture myself there. And it was like this was, it, it felt like it was speaking to me, that I was hearing the actual words of Jesus being spoken to me, and I was there, and it became very exciting. And then I read the Acts, which is the, the next book in the New Testament, which really depicts all of what the first Christians then get up to. And what they get up to is all the things that Jesus had got up to, but they weren't Jesus, and I found that very compelling. I thought, this is so exciting. It was like a whole new world had been brought open to me, and I couldn't stop it. I read it all the time. It was very strange, because before I just thought this is, I, I, I don't like it, I don't even want to touch it. When we view the whole of the Bible through the lens of Jesus, a fundamental change will happen in our appreciation of it, because it stops being a book about us, fundamentally. And often people want it to be a book about them. It's like, open, I need it to speak to me. I'm going to open it, speak to me. Come on, do it. No, not working, not working, give up. Now, it is about us, but primarily it's about him. It's not about how we should live primarily, although it includes that. It's not about what we should do, although it includes that. It's not about whether we are good enough or bad enough or what he thinks about us primarily. It's about him. And so when we see it about him about what he's like, what he's done, what he will do for us, what he thinks about us, we find it a lot easier to be the sort of people that this God actually would like us to be. Um, consider, just by way of example, the story of David and Goliath from the Old Testament, a story that probably everyone is familiar with. Does everyone know David and Goliath? Um, uh, big giant, small shepherd boy. Uh, small shepherd boy kills big giant with stones. Okay, now, the way this is usually depicted to children is, be like David. You should be like David. If you have faith like David, then even though you're a small little shepherd boy, you, in God's power, can defeat anything that can come against you. So just have faith like David, right? Now, of course, on one level, that's exactly what that story is about. But not as it was originally told. We, although we like to make ourselves the hero of the story, are not the hero of the story. That story is written for the Israelites, about them being the Israelites. It's written for us as the Israelites, quaking in our boots, because this Goliath, this a total monster, is going to destroy us. And what could we do? The answer is nothing. And yet God's servant, God's chosen one, turns up and de defeats the enemies because David is really just a precursor to Jesus. Because unlike David, Jesus doesn't die. Unlike David, Jesus doesn't fail. Unlike David, Jesus remains forever with us and can defeat not just 
big, ugly Goliaths, but everything. This is what the story is supposed to show, is that we are there cowering on the sidelines, going, we need help. Who is going to help us? And what it says is God is going to help us, always. He will come and do extraordinary things. And he will vindicate us, because that's the sort of God he is. So I'm kind of just not really sticking to the script. And we can obviously translate that to other Goliaths, the Goliath of unforgiveness. We find it very difficult to forgive other people. What we have in Jesus is someone who offers unconditional forgiveness to us all. And when we trust in him, we can actually, in his strength, in, in the strength of his forgiveness, forgive those who have um, wronged us that we feel by ourselves we cannot. And the same be true of the Goliaths of fear or failure or lack of self-worth or criticism or loneliness. Jesus steps in and says, I will, in my power, lift you up. You're going to be okay. So, reading Jesus into the whole story of the Bible sets us free from reading this book as some sort of list of moralistic requirements. Tell me what I'm supposed to do, and I will do it. It's much more rich than that. It's much bigger than that. It's much more important than just that. You see, ultimately, the Bible is a record of what God wants to say to us, a record of him sharing himself with humanity since the very beginning. And within this incredible book of 66 actual different books, the whole of human life is there. There are books about doubt and suffering. There are depictions of every kind of pain that we can inflict on other people. There are reflections on marriage and sex and money and parenthood and anxiety and guilt and joy. The book of Ecclesiastes, read that recently, it begins meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It is an honest depiction of someone's despair and depression. Why is it in the Bible? Because humans go through these things. And isn't it reassuring to, to know that God is not just papering over the cracks, not trying to just um, portray one version of life where everything is great because of God. No, it's right there in the middle because it depicts real life. The Song of Solomon is like a love sex poem. It is not about God. Whatever anyone has ever told you in Sunday school, it is not about God. It doesn't mention God. It is about love and sex. Why? Because love and sex are important, and God thinks they're important, and so they're there in the Bible. Proverbs is like this collection of wisdom sayings. What the ancient philosophers would do is they would sort of share pithy little sayings. And the Jewish philosophers were no different. And they would borrow from different uh, philosophers. So they would go to the Mesopotamians and go, oh, you've got some good little philosophies. I'm going to put that in my book of Proverbs. Oh, the Egyptians, they've got some good ones. And they would share them. So Proverbs is like, um, if you do these things, then life will go well. This is what the world is like. It goes like this. Now, the problem with Proverbs, though, is that it doesn't in any way address the issue of suffering which is why we have the book of Job, which is in the same collection of wisdom books. And Job is there right alongside Proverbs saying, yeah, but this guy did everything right, and still terrible things happen to him. 
What are we to make of that? It's a direct, actually, refutation of the idea of Proverbs, do this and everything will go fine. It's saying, well, no, actually, that's not how the world works. And yet, it says, God is still true and real. How do we work this out? It doesn't give any trite answers, but it does depict real life, because this is a book of real life. It's a book of relationships, not easy answers. It is not a self-help manual. It is not five easy rules for a, a successful life. It's not a list of disconnected commands, but rather it's like a living, breathing book of reality. It spans, it spans thousands of years of human history, includes many different genres, <coughs> and because it includes different genres, it needs to be read as different genres. I need to um, make a slight apology, because last week I said, I accidentally let slip, that Adam and Eve are people that I don't necessarily believe were real people. Please just ignore that. Uh, I know that that can be a bit worrying, but the point is, the first three chapters of Genesis, in my opinion, are quite clearly written as um, mythic poems. Now, myth in the true sense of the word, sort of huge, grandiose depictions of things, like the Iliad or the Odyssey. These are huge myths, which is not to say that they aren't true. They have incredible and powerful truths to them, but they're not, and I don't think they purport to be, written as history. Now, they may be historical, but I don't think that's the point. The point is, this is something that gives us bigger ideas than just history. Because if the history of um, the world was all we would need to know, then it would be, well, the biology happened, and then this happened, and then this person happened, and this person happened. That's not what we need to know. We need to know how we got here. How we got here in terms of why is the world like it is? Why are human beings like they are? Why can they do amazing things and terrible things? Is there a God? Why is creation beautiful and also awful? Why is uh, there beauty and wonder? Why is the universe so huge? These are questions that are far more interesting to us than this person, and then this person, and then this person, and then this person, and then dinosaurs, they didn't make it in. You know, all of those questions. Does that make sense? The Psalms are pieces of poetry. And as any creative will tell you, pieces of poetry, pieces of song, they're not necessarily supposed to be um, taken literally. We were just li listening to Olivia Rodrigo's new album. <laughs> she says things in that which I don't think she necessarily wants to be taken completely literally. And in the same way, David, when he's writing his psalm, saying, I want you to smash my, head's enemies, my en enemies' heads with rocks, I don't think he's necessarily, or maybe he is, being completely literal about it, but it is a depiction of what he's actually feeling. And so it's important that we understand what genre is what so that we can appreciate it for what it is. There are some parts of the Bible that are clearly not history and some parts that clearly are. We looked at the Gospels last week uh, and um, the uh, book of Acts falls into the same genre. In fact, Acts is like the second half of Luke's volume on one Jesus to the first early Christians. These are clearly written as history and we should take them as history. 
which doesn't mean you have to believe that it's historically accurate, but it is what it is purporting to be. It's saying this real Jesus, the, he really did these things in time and space, and these real disciples really did these things in time and space, and I am writing it as history. It has the ring of truth to it, and it is written like that. So it's important that we understand that. But just those bits that weren't written as history doesn't mean that they can't give us very important and powerful truths about what the world's like. Because Christians believe this isn't just a collection of things randomly put together, but that it is inspired by God. That does not mean that it was dramatically inscribed by a big divine pen coming out of the clouds on its huge God hand and then writing it magically out of nowhere and all of a sudden, poof, we have the Bible. Nor does it mean that the human writers who wrote it were somehow sort of taken over in a trance and didn't really know what they were doing, but all of a sudden, wow, they've produced the Bible. Rather, it is inspired in the sense that it has God's seal of approval through it. It reveals who he is. Um, I like architecture. Uh, I like good architecture, uh, which means... 85% of LA is a disaster, uh, but 15% is very good. Uh, and if you were to go down to um, downtown, you would see Frank Geary's um, uh, Walt Disney Concert Hall, which is wonderful, beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Now, we say that that is the work of that um, architect, and yet he never welded any steel, put in any glasses laid any foundations but it's his work and in the same way the bible is the work of god inspired by him his seal of approval uh, running through it and so because it's his communication to us it should also be our supreme authority for life it should guide our beliefs and behavior the bible is like a guidance for the enjoyment of life it is not a rule suppress a sort of um, joy suppressing rule book. God does not decree, for instance, "Thou shalt not kill," because He wants to ruin our lives. He does it because the idea of if we play within the boundaries that God, the Creator, has set, then life will go well for us. And just out of interest, do we think that life throughout history has gone particularly well when people have ignored some of the you know, more obvious and um, uh, in, innate moral teachings of the Bible. I don't think so. So that briefly is what the Bible is. Let me turn the attention to how it works and then why and how anyone might want to read it. Firstly, how does it work? Why trust the Bible? The Bible's not authoritative because it's, in, because it's the Bible. That's just a circular argument where you just go round and round going, because it is, because it is, because it is. It doesn't prove anything. The Bible is not authoritative because it's the Bible. It actually never claims to be authoritative. The only absolute authority in the universe, says the Bible, is God. And so it is authoritative not because it's the Bible but rather it becomes authoritative in the way in which it reveals the authority of God. The authority belongs to Jesus. And the Bible is simply a means by which Jesus' authority is revealed. So imagine, if you will, with me, 
that I receive a letter. And I receive a letter, and at the top of it, it says it's from Buckingham Palace and from King Charles, your king and mine. Uh, and <laughs> King Charles has written to me, and he said, um, I, you have come to my attention, Ed Flint, and I would like to uh, put you in charge of um, helping me fulfill all my purposes for the world. My main purpose is to make America great Britain again. And uh, it's a bad joke. Uh, and I am tasking you to do this, and you have all my authority. Now, if I showed this piece of paper, this letter, to the guards at Buckingham Palace, they would probably laugh out loud. It has no authority in and of itself. However, if Charles put down his corgis, walk, he doesn't have corgis, walked down from the steps and said, no, 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 I did write that, and I, I, that has my authority, it suddenly becomes very authoritative. And you can all be my subjects, it will be fine. <laughs> the Bible has authority in the same way, not its own, but God's, Jesus Christ's. It is filled with his authority. Which means, therefore, we need to be very careful about how we treat sort of individual verses or even passages plucked out at random and go, it's in the Bible, it's authoritative. Just flinging around proof texts to prove our point doesn't actually uh, do anything. Because what we are after is not, it's in the Bible, therefore, but rather, what is Jesus' authority? How does his kingdom exist? What does it look like? How does he rule it? How does it change people? That's what we're looking for. And so really we have to take the whole span of God's authority from the Bible and that will actually allow it to speak to us as it should. So therefore, to understand Jesus' authority. It's not really a case of ticking off the, have I read my Bible today? Well done, I've read my Bible today. Tick. Great. Now I feel better about myself. I mean, nothing changed. I didn't understand it. But well done, I've done it. Yes, you've read the Bible, but you might as well have read the Twilight Saga or anything that might have been more <laughs> enjoyable. Instead, a healthy attitude to the Bible is not necessarily about knowing every inch of it well, although that can help, but it's not some sort of textbook that you are going to be tested on when you get to heaven. Rather, it's also not about kind of living by a few verses taken out of context that you sort of parrot over and over again, like sort of wishes. This is my life verse. I live by this verse. Instead, it's allowing the whole breadth, the whole depth, the whole force of Jesus' authority to affect every area of your life as he reveals it in the Bible. Let him, through it, change your heart. Let him, through it, show you who he is. Let him, through it, drive you out into the world to accomplish all that he has created you to do and to be. This is the reason to read the Bible, is to get more of him and his power. So then, how do we read it? Um, there are broadly two ways of reading it. Both are important. 
the first is um, probably the one in which most people in this country will be familiar, which is um, just because it's a very Western sort of individualistic way. It's how does the Bible relate to little old me and um, my relationship with God? So it covers issues like sin and forgiveness and uh, the love of God for people, individuals, those sorts of things. Now, the positive approach of this is how the power of the gospel can impact people's lives on a deeply personal way. The sort of traditional trope of the person suddenly seeing Jesus for the first time and knowing themselves to be loved and to be forgiven and bowing down and worshipping him because they've seen him in the Bible. These things are true and they are powerful because they are real. People experience for themselves a living, breathing relationship with the God who is personal, personal to them. And it's kind of what we will be looking at on the day away. How can little old me understand big old God? How is he interested? Does he speak? Does he know me? What could he do with me? But if this is the only way we treat the Bible, and therefore our Christian experience, then we can become quite self-related. It's all about me and my relationship to the big G-O-D. And we obsess about, is it going okay? How is my walk with the Lord? Or we obsess about other people and how their walk with the Lord is going. Oh, I should check up on him. He looks like he's backsliding. It's all about how that's going. It becomes all about us, all about the individual. It can create a sort of unhealthy and unbiblical desire, actually, to try and escape from the horribleness of the world, to get to heaven as quickly as possible, because that's all that matters. Me and God, that's it. This is why we need the second approach as well, and this may be the one which people in uh, Western societies tend to be less um, uh, au fait with. This is not how the Bible relates to individuals, but rather how the Bible relates to the whole cosmos the whole universe. And it answers the question, not how can I be right with God, but what hope is there for the world at all? Rather than deal with individual things like sin and faith and grace and personal experience, instead it answers the question, where did the world come from? What's gone wrong with it? And what is needed to mend it? It is about the whole sort of narrative arc of the Bible from start to finish, from creation to fall, to redemption to restoration. So if the first one is about the means of people being made right with God, the second is about the purpose for being made right with God. And the purpose is to create heaven here on earth, to be used, to become fully used so that you might actually partake in the mission that God has given all human beings to bring his glorious, beautiful, wonderful, heavenly creation to a broken world. We were talking uh, last week about, so if God, uh, if there's nothing you can do to make God love you less, and there's nothing to do to, for, uh, for God to, um, can do to make, sorry, say this again. If there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, what's the point? This is what we're sort of talking about a little bit in the um, group time. And the point is, as uh, someone said, well, it, it must be, surely, because it makes us better and it makes other people better. 
it makes the world in which we live a much more beautiful, wonderful place to actually be concerned about the things of God. Surely that would be why he would want to say anything to us or do anything in us. This is a process that Jesus began on the cross, but it's not yet completed. But he invites us into it to complete it. As such, the Bible is actually the one book that has not got any end to it, not yet. It holds out the possibility of our involvement in this biblical story right here, right now, today, and for the rest of your lives. So if you wouldn't mind, let's play a little game, a little imaginary game, and you are um, thespian types. You are all actors, right? Some of you, this will be very easy because you're actually actors and therefore you can imagine being an actor and you can even play an actor because you're an actor. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we'll just try and pretend that we are actors. And most importantly, we are Shakespearean actors. We have a deep knowledge of Shakespeare's work, right? We are steeped in all of the Bard's stuff. Suddenly, on the news, we hear that a as-yet undiscovered play has been unearthed. One of Shakespeare's long-lost great masterpieces. The issue, though, is we only have up to Act 5, Scene 1. We've got Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, Act 5, Scene 1, so we don't know how it ends. We've lost that piece. We are then tasked, as a group of Shakespearean actors, with the deepest knowledge of his work, to improvise, knowing how he writes, knowing what he would do, knowing how he would say things, knowing where his plots would go, knowing who would die, who would fall in love, all of these things, we are then tasked to improvise the rest of the play. This is what it is like with the Bible. We have Act 1, the creation. We have Act 2, the fall. We have Act 3, the whole history of God's chosen people, Israel, and their interaction with God. And we have Act 4, Jesus. We have his cross and resurrection, and we have Act 5, Scene 1, the early church. We, as Christians, are tasked now with improvising, knowing the story, being empowered by his spirit to carry on the story. This is what makes being a Christian really exciting. The rest of it is just, you know, whatever, in my opinion. But knowing that you can carry on the story of this thing with the healing, and the deliverance, and the forgiveness, and the love, and the wonder, and using your particular gifts for particular things to make the world what it's supposed to be. That is when Christianity gets very exciting. It's not just about what you believe, although that's very important. It's not just about what you how you behave, although that's very important. It is about what you're tasked to do. And you will be part of the greatest story ever, the story, the more you are able to actually believe that God wants to use you, that you have a reason and a purpose on this earth, that he has chosen you, you little old weak thing. It's very good to say, mm, he doesn't mean me. He means her or him or whoever's standing next to me. But he doesn't mean me because little old me, what could I do? 
It's a good thing to do that. That's the best protestation you could ever make to God. God loves it when you do that because then he goes, great, I'll use you. I like the weak things. I like the things that know that they haven't got it all together, that know that they don't believe all the right things, that know that they actually, um, in and of themselves, are a bit of a screw-up. Thank you very much. Uh, but those are the ones he wants. He's always wanted those because when he uses them, then he can go, then no one is left in any doubt who's actually doing the stuff. It's him. So, this is what the Bible holds out, that you are vitally important. So important that the whole thing was written for you, individually. But you are also so vitally important because there is so much for you that you can do in his power. And it will change you and all the people you love forever. You're here, almost certainly, because someone else has taken seriously this story and they have brought you in somehow, through prayer, through invitation, through whatever. You will do the same to other people, bring people into his kingdom. It's the most exciting thing, most fulfilling thing in the whole world. Uh, that'll do on that. Um, just practically, how do you read the Bible? This is the thing that people um, find uh, the best thing about this talk. How do you actually read the Bible? Number one, you've actually got to read it. I know. Unfortunately, that Bible that Granny gave you when you were 12 or when you got confirmed that's sitting up on your shelf and is gathering dust, it is not going to somehow magically, by osmosis, get all of its stuff into you if it just sits there on the shelf. So you do actually need to read it. What I would suggest is get a Bible and a translation of the Bible that you like and you understand, most importantly, that you understand. I know people obsess about the King James Version. Do you understand what the King James Version is? The King James Version was a very good attempt for the time. The problem was the time was hundreds of years ago, and we didn't know as much as we do now. So I would ditch the King James Version. It's just not very accurate. Get a new modern translation that actually is much more accurate to the original Greek, to the original Hebrew, and then uh, use that. And what I would do, this is how I read the Bible. Here's the Bible. I would start with, Matthew, uh, with Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark is like um, an idiot. <laughs> He, he, um, he writes in very basic form. He, he writes subject, verb, object. The cat sat on the mat. So uh, it, it's a, it gets slightly tedious, but it means that it's quite easy to get where he's going. No long sentences and clauses and things like that. And what I would do is I would um, open it to Mark's Gospel, right? And you can see there's little sections. Nice bite-sized sections. Uh, this is not in the original Greek, but... Uh, you have a little section. And I would just read the section, right? But before I did anything, I would go, God, will you speak to me through your Bible? I believe that you speak. I believe that this is important. Will you show me anything that you want to show me? Would you speak to my heart about anything? And then I would start reading. Mark Twain said, it's not the bits of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me, it's the bits that do. There are plenty of things that you will fully understand that will make you go, oh my goodness, this is real. So don't worry about all the things you don't understand. Just concentrate on the bits that you do. In the beginning, sorry, not even right. Uh, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, it's the beginning. This is the start of him. This is what I'd be saying to myself. It's the beginning. It's the start of him. It's good news. That sounds good. I like good news. And it's about Jesus. I know who he is, the Messiah. 
uh, have a vague idea of that, the Son of God, yeah, got that. As it is written in Isaiah, I don't know who he is, the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Okay, this is a quotation, it looks like. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So it sounds like someone is coming before Jesus to make sure that everyone is ready for Jesus. And so John the Baptist, ah, it's John the Baptist, I get it. Ah, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Long christian words, kind of understand them, but I don't really, so I'll just move over that. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Okay, I get that. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Please, God, don't make me do that. This was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. Okay, so he's powerful. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Okay, so this guy is very important. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then I would end, and I'd go, okay. What, what, so that was that section. Um, that sounds like Jesus is, um, is really important, and I do think he's important. I wonder whether I think he's important enough. He sounds like he's powerful. That scares me a bit. But ultimately, I do probably want him to be quite powerful, I think. If he's going to be God, I need him to be powerful because I want him to do things for me, and I want him to do th things for the people I love. So I would then pray. i go, Jesus, I thank you that you're powerful. I'm a bit scared of your power. I do not want to be like John the Baptist. Please don't make me be like John the Baptist. But I understand that you came to bring good news. And I need good news. I want to know what, more of what that good news is. Thank you that you are here with me. Amen. And then when I've done, and now I've done my Bible reading, and then I'll do the same the next day, see where the story runs. The thing about the Gospels is really exciting. Have you ever read them? They're very exciting. So then tomorrow, get to read a bit more. Good? Good. Invariably, I find the Bible speaks. I find it doesn't speak when I don't read it. But when I do read it, I find it speaks to me. And that's what excites me about it, that this is a magic book. Not in that way, but in that way. It's a magic book. What could happen? Anything could happen. God is here. He could do anything through it. So get as much of it as you can. I want to tell you just a little story that I always tell because uh, it amuses me. Um, but um, I, I've experienced the Bible speak to me in a number of different ways. And um, some of them have been very powerful. Really, the reason to come here and plant the church was because God spoke to me through a passage in Acts that he then spoke to someone else. Uh, he then spoke to my mother who did not want us to come here. She did not want, them to, want us to come here, but nevertheless, she told me about how God had spoken to her about us coming here through exactly the same passage that he'd spoken to me about. And then the janitor at our church, who was an odd man, uh, he had been reading the Bible, and God completely independently had felt, uh, he felt like God had spoken to him about us, about moving to L.A. through exactly the same passage. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got to go and do this. If I'd known what it would have taken, never have done it. But I couldn't deny that God had spoken. So, I, so we had to. It was a nightmare. It's been lovely now, but it was very difficult to start. Um, but yeah, my favourite thing was from my next door neighbour in London, who was also a Christian, and, uh, but he went to a different church. And uh, yeah, his judgment will come. Uh, but he, he, was, he was called Danny. And um, he, was, he was telling me, he was like, 
we are going to um, redo our um, uh, master suite bathroom and we've got this beautiful um, oak panelling that we are putting through it and we're really excited and we're all ready and we've been saving up and we're going to do it. It's very exciting. He's telling me about it. I went, oh, that's great. And then he said, and then we went to church and we heard about our church. There's a leak in the roof. What's new? And they're raising money uh, to fix the roof. And I felt like God was saying, well, maybe we should give money to the roof thing, but we want to do the bathroom. And so as good Christians, we're going to do the bathroom. <laughs> and then he was reading and he read from uh, Haggai, who's a sort of Old Testament prophet. You don't, don't worry about Haggai. I mean, you can read Haggai if you'd like. But in Haggai, the bit that he read straight after this was this. Is it a time, says the prophet of the Lord, for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses <laughs> while the house of God remains in ruin? <laughs> which I love because it was for Danny and not for me. And he, anyway, he went and gave the money to the church and they fixed the roof and then they saved more and he did his oak panelling and everything was fine. So to conclude, the Bible is the story of Jesus. Ultimately, it is Jesus on every page. And it's about his authority affecting the people that he loves. So open it allow him to speak and see what he might do in and through you with his great power. That's what it's for. Good? Good. Let's finish there. <laughs>